Zhao. And I'm Sarah Kim. And this is our new podcast called 1790 to explore Asian American and Pacific Islander history. We're just two Asian American college students who are frustrated by racism in our curriculums and in the media, leading to the erasure of our experiences and voices, and more generally, those of people of color. We decided to focus on exploring Asian American and Pacific Islander history on this podcast because of the lack of hearing and seeing people like us in our own education and the mainstream media. We chose 1790 as the title because it was the year that the Naturalization Act was passed in the U.S., which prevented Chinese and other foreign-born people from entering the country and expressed explicit intent of preserving the U.S. as a nation of white native-born men. And its effects lasted all the way until the 1950s. So titling our podcast 1790 is a reminder to us of just how entrenched discrimination against APIs specifically is in American history. We also thought a lot about what terminology we should use to refer to ourselves throughout this podcast. Should we use AAPI for Asian American and Pacific Islander or just Asian American? Isn't that sad that we in 2016 have to pause and think about what we can even call ourselves? And it's tricky because scholars have an ongoing debate on whether the term AAPI should be even used because Pacific Islanders have a very different set of experiences from East Asians. Right, but ultimately we think that though cultural backgrounds and experiences can be different, There are still so many similarities in terms of how Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are stereotyped, homogenized, and even exoticized. Our experiences of minority marginalization aren't exactly similar, but they are all very relatable. Yeah, totally. And it's also important to realize, though, that terms like API and Asian Americans can have homogenizing effects on the population, because often when we think of Asian American, it's important that we don't only talk about East Asians. Yeah, Sarah, that is really important. But as two cishet East Asian women, we know that we have our own specific set of experiences, even though we will strive to be inclusive to all AAPI experiences. So if you ever have any thoughts about ways we can improve our show in terms of inclusiveness, please, please let us know. Um, So now to more on how this podcast came about. I took a class on Asian American history in the beginning of my sophomore year of college, and it must have been the most relevatory experience I've had since like when I became aware and vocal about sexism as a teenager. I had never really appreciated, much less even thought about, my Asian Americanness before then. And I think I can speak for many young Asian American women when I say that ignoring our racial background was how we fit in with our friends. So forcing myself to confront my Asian American heritage through historical documents, personal accounts, cultural records on a day-to-day basis was really eye-opening to me. Like I had just uncovered an entire depth to myself, a rich past that I had been unaware of my whole life. So Sarah, how did you get interested in Asian American history? So I actually immigrated from Korea to Canada from a young age and then moved back to Korea where I attended an international high school and now I'm in the U.S. for college. But I remember studying for a test for my Western Civ class in high school in a cafe next to one of the historical gates in Seoul and thinking, wow, I 
literally know next to nothing about my own history, either Asian Canadian or Asian history. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there are almost no young Asian American high schoolers out there who make the same self-reflection, but instead think, wow, I know so much about my AAPI history, and because I do, I really understand myself. It's impossible because we as APIs know so little about ourselves. Yeah, so this podcast is a way for us to understand Asian American history and the oppression APIs faced and the contributions APIs made in order for us to take back the narrative from, well, white dominance and to hopefully inspire APIs. And we're obviously not professional historians and we can't cover everything in a short podcast. We just hope to learn a little bit more about our own history, and hopefully you'll learn something too. Okay, on to the actual history. So, for our first episode, we're going to be talking about Anna Mae Wong, who was the first Chinese-American actress in Hollywood. She was born in Los Angeles' Chinatown in 1905, and acted in major films since the age of 17, starting as the lead role in the second Technicolor feature, The Toll of the Sea, in 1922, and she continued to be most active in Hollywood throughout the 20s and 30s. And we decided to start off with her because, unfortunately, the whitewashing she faced during her time as an actress is still a very persistent problem today. We'll talk about Anna Mae Wong's modern parallels a little later, but it's funny because we both came to know who Anna Mae Wong was in different contexts. I first learned about Anna Mae Wong when I went to visit the Met costume exhibit called China Through the Looking Glass, when I went to New York City last summer. It was the most popular Met costume exhibit in history at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, so I'm sure some of our listeners saw it and can remember Anna Mae Wong's exotic costumes displayed all throughout the gallery, along with clips from the movies she starred in. What I liked about that exhibit was that it was very aware of its focus on Chinese cultural exoticism, and the curators acknowledged many times that they knew these costume representations of Asia were fabricated and exaggerated to fit Western tastes, but they were clear in telling viewers that they never said it was China. It was just how Americans see China through a Hollywood-clad, exoticized lens, and Anna Mae Wong was really at the center of all of it. So how did you first hear about Anna Mae Wong? Yeah, I found out about her in a video when Oscar So White was trending because a role that was meant for a Chinese female should have gone to her in 1935 for Pearl Buck's Good Earth. And it went to a white woman because of anti-miscegenation laws preventing a person of color from kissing a white person on screen. And this white lady won an Oscar for her role as a Chinese lady named Olan. Talk about Oscar So White. And to this day, no Asian female has won an Oscar. To give you a taste of how incredible it was that there was even an Asian American female actress in Hollywood, just 23 years before Wong's birthday was the enaction of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which prevented Chinese people from immigrating to the US because they were an immoral people and anti-miscegenation laws were still a thing. Not so surprisingly, she was offered very stereotypical roles. In her first breakout role, she played the character of Lotus Flower, a retelling of Madame Butterfly. Madame Butterfly is basically the classic example of white man goes to Asia and falls in love with Asian woman. Can I just say, I love how her character names like Lotus Flower are straight up just stereotypes. In her next film, Wong played 
quote, the Mongol slave in a film called The Thief of Baghdad. So basically, she was only allowed to play the delicate little submissive Asian lady or the evil foreign Asian person. And her name basically was that stereotype. And Wong was aware of the Orientalism in the roles she was offered. She said of the characters she was forced to play, why is it that the screen Chinese is always the villain and so crude a villain, murderous, treacherous, a snake in the grass, we are not like that. And Anna Mae Wong was a third-generation Chinese-American. Her family had lived in the U.S. since 1855, which I'd be willing to bet is even earlier than many of the people who lived in California in the 1900s. Yet, even then, she was still always expected to play the role of the foreigner. This misconception is still so prevalent even today. There are so many multi-generational Asian-Americans who come from families that have lived here longer than a lot of Americans, and yet there's always an assumption that they're fresh off the boat immigrants who are completely new and unaware of American culture. So to escape the Orientalism of Hollywood, Wong went to Europe in 1928, where she was offered lead roles that exoticized her a little less. For one, in what's considered her greatest role, she plays a dancer called Show Show. So like I said, slightly less. In 1931, she returned to the U.S. to play the best friend alongside the white actress Marlon Dietrich in a film called Shanghai Express. I'm sure you're very respectable, madam. I must confess I don't quite know the standard of respectability that you demand in your boarding house, Mrs. Haggerty. The two actresses were actually really good friends, but one got lead roles and the other got the best friend part. And honestly, not that much has changed for Asian American actors and creators today. They're still relegated to play the submissive Asian person, the evil foreigner, or the best friend. Think of Pitch Perfect, for example. Two stereotypes in that exist. Becca, the main character's roommate, is an Asian who only hangs out with other Asians, and Becca originally speaks to her in slowed-down English. Like, what the heck? She's going to university in the States. She can obviously understand English at a fluent level. And this is why Asians often <laughs> like hanging out with each other, so we don't have to deal with stupid microaggressions like this. <laughs> so true. And of course, Lily, the quiet Asian girl in the acapella group, who, when she does speak, speaks nonsense or speaks so quietly that nobody can hear her. And she was literally advertised as the quiet one in ads for the movie. And another funny thing is that Pitch Perfect heavily implies that Lily gets together with the only other Asian person in the movie. Like, yes, Asians are the only people capable of understanding other Asians. It's like the miscegenation laws never actually went away. And roles that should go to Asians or people of color go to white people. Scarlett Johansson playing a Japanese person in Ghost in the Shell, a movie based off an anime. And what's really crazy is DreamWorks, the production company, invested in technology to make Scarlett Johansson look more Asian. Sarah, could you explain to me how that works? Like, what does this Asian technology even entail? visual effects test because they'd rather spend their movie budget on state-of-the-art yellow face technology rather than just casting an actual Asian actress. And there's so many examples. Tilda Swinton, who's playing a Tibetan monk called the Ancient One. <laughs> and Emma Stone played a half-Asian girl named Alison Ng in a movie called Aloha. This was set in Hawaii where the majority population are AAPIs. Just recently, a trailer came out for that new movie with Matt Damon, 
Uh, I think it's called the Great Wall. And so he comes to save the Great Wall in ancient China because white people were definitely in ancient China. I also love how they put a lot of dirt on his face to make his skin look darker and more Asian. And these have all been from either this or last year. Yeah, that's that's just incredible. <laughs> and not to get all cliche, but this is really why learning the history of Asian Americans is so important. Because Asian American actors did exist throughout Hollywood before, and people like Anna Mae Wong were trailblazers for us. But if we forget about them, AAPI actors are always going to have to trailblaze and fight the same fights as they get placed in the same roles they've been playing since the early 1900s. And remember how you were pointing out that Lily from Pitch Perfect kind of actually looked like Anime Wong? Yeah, and we're not being racist. They really do look alike, Google it. Like, or at least they're made to look so in the film with the big eyes and the made-up made hair and all of the like cute little outfits. Yeah, I, I totally see it. They both have the porcelain-eyed doll look with the deep black bangs. And so here we are in 2016 dealing with the same movie stereotype portrayals of Asian Americans as we were 100 years ago. But, you know, for all that hasn't changed, it does seem like we are finally in a different moment now because we're finally having control over the narrative with Aziz Ansari's Master of None or Fresh Off the Boat. And we're finally getting lead non-stereotypical roles like Josh Chan on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. But... Even then, it's just a small fraction of all the million shows that are out there. I informally calculated a statistic once of like the 500 and something television shows that exist versus the ones that are centered around Asian Americans and it was still only like 0.2% of television. And even if you talk about representation proportionally, which has its own set of issues, but is often how people talk about representation, that's still terrible. Because AAPIs make up 5% of the population and we're the fastest growing minority population in the United States. Now when whitewashing happens, AAPIs have a platform through the growing attention they're getting from the media and through their own actions across social media to voice these wrongs. And in the meantime, we'll keep being vocal. That's our first episode. Thanks to Rachel Kim for helping us record and edit this podcast and for Xion An for designing our podcast title. We'll put the links to all the articles we read. And if you liked the podcast, please feel free to share it and we'd love to hear your thoughts. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. Thanks so much.